Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith and thank you for listening. David is not here. He couldn't be bothered. I'm joking, of course. He is uh, covering AFI Fest uh, this week. And uh, at least I believe that's that's the one. I've lost track of I've lost track of uh, film festivals that exist because uh, over at uh, Rediscover Television, we've been submitting my film to a lot of film festivals, and I suddenly realized how many of them there are. There are lots and lots. And uh, yeah, obviously something like AF- AFI Fest is, is a bigger deal than that, but uh, I'm, I'm fascinated at the world of film festivals. I feel like, I feel like my, uh, my guest today and I, we could probably f- with very little effort, we could probably put together a film festival and it could do pretty well. I don't know. Uh, I'll have to look into it. I did take a film festival programming course at UCLA and it was the easiest class I've ever taken. So because the class, uh, they did not get enough enrollment for it to like be official. There were only two of us enrolled, but the instructor like didn't want to cancel the class. So it wound up being the three of us meeting once a month. It was great. I got credit for that shit. Like when people, when people talk about, uh, I haven't introduced the guest yet. Sorry about that. When people talk about uh, like, Oh wow, your master's from UCLA. That must be that, you know, that's pretty impressive. And in my mind, I think of that, uh, you know, one hour a month (laughs) at a coffee shop. Uh, in which we just brainstorm different ideas for uh, for a film festival, and I think it was not impressive. No, um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, speaking of guests, which we weren't, uh, uh, but except to say that I hadn't introduced uh, the guest yet. But don't worry, that's going to be remedied right now. Our guest is, uh, as David likes to say, inexplicable fan favorite, Jason Aiken. Jason, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I just had a cup of coffee and I can feel it. I can feel it. I feel my energy uh, skyrocketing. Now, so if you've got a number of, let's just say anonymous emails, explaining why I would be a fan favorite, um, would I become the explicable fan favorite? That would stand to reason. That seems, it would, but that almost sounds too clinical. Inexplicable somehow sounds like, Obviously, insul- High, insulting, but how like about highly explicable. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that almost sounds like uh, someone like shouldn't light a match near you or something like that. <laughs> that um, that's also true. <laughs> Both can be true. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know why you you know use uh, kerosene as aftershave, which is itself, I believe, a Home Alone two reference. Now that I say it. Um, <laughs> Okay, so listeners, missing David already, undoubtedly. Um, But thank you for tuning uh, in, everybody, and thank you, Jason, for being here. Yeah, now I have to say, you know, uh, I'm I'm hearing about this film festival course, and I'm reminded of a course I took to get my theater major, which Mm -hmm. was a theater management class. Um, And in that class, we sort of, you know, had, I'm, I'm basically realizing I worked much harder at my undergraduate degree at Central Missouri State University, now University of Central Missouri, uh, than you did at your master's at Oh UCLA. my, oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. We, we each had to come up with a fully like 10 page pitch for a theater, a fully realized mm. theater, a slate of, of productions 
like the way that it would be run sort of if it was catered to a niche. And then basically we were broken up into teams. We had to vote on one of our theater ideas. And then all of us basically, I mean, we were meeting, I know we were meeting, I want to say it it was weekly because it was whatever night lost was airing. And so Mm. I would tape lost on a video cassette (laughs) (laughs) so that I could watch it later. Um, and so that I always sort of tried to shoo my group out cause we, but we met in my room, but yeah, we met like, I don't know, eight times or something like that to sort of come up with how this theater would be run. Now I should, I should say that by the end of the semester, both this other student and I, we did have to come up with our own separate, uh, film festival pitch that was all written out and we had to come up with like, what are you talking like two, three paragraphs tops? Uh, per, per film that okay. was going to be screened there uh, okay. with, I don't remember if there was a minimum of 20, um, but also you have to come up with like where it's going to be, why you have to make it's going to be the there. Movies? No, no, no. They could be real movies. Oh. Um, oh, that's too bad. But yeah, everything you had to essentially like justify everything. Yes. So uh, mine was unsurprisingly and very on brand. Mine was, it wasn't a faith-based film festival. It was more like, you know, real movies uh, that had a faith element. Um, and so, and it varied from, uh, what is it, Passion of Joan of Arc to Man for All Seasons. I believe I did a, a More Than One Lesson episode about it that you can you can uh, listen to called uh, My Fake Film Festival. And uh, and I, I, I chose um, our old stomping grounds of Springfield, Missouri, because it's kind of this weird intersection of like college town that mm-hmm. has over time become a little bit more artistically minded and, you know, uh, a very Bible belt uh, uh, place. So, um, yeah. And I believe at the time I said, uh, I, I said, oh, it will, it will be at the Campbell 16, which that is not what it's called oh, anymore. No. So, no, it's an Alamo draft house now. Right. I think it'd actually be more likely to have uh, to, to yeah. host a film festival at that point. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, but I, I remember the first semester of my master's because I had been out of school for a while. And, you know, I, I turned in like my first paper, which was a, which was uh, about uh, Christian social drama. It's it's essentially what would become. Uh, the do- the other documentary I made, Real Redemption, um, and I turned it in. And as I clicked, as I clicked send, I was like, I have no clue if that is an A paper or an F paper. I have no idea what they're looking for. Let's give it a shot. And then when it came back with an A, I was like, okay, okay, good to know. And then the second paper I turned in, I felt the same thing. It came back with an A, and I was like, okay. I think I got this. I think I understand how this works. They are inclined to give you A's if they think you've put in the effort. So I will give the impression of putting in the effort and I will get that sweet master's degree. And then I'm going to go and teach people. (laughs) And I will put as much effort into that curriculum as an an instructor uh, as I did uh, as a student. So anyway, uh, I'm a big fraud is what I'm saying, as people will undoubtedly realize as we talk uh, today. So <clears throat> the topic uh, is one that I had pitched to David because we just keep coming up just when we think our little series about acting is done or actors is done. One or the other of us 
will say, hey, what about this? That sounds fun. It's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's just keep it going. Um, so I pitched uh, this idea to David and he was excited about it, but uh, he wasn't going to be here this week. But he said, you know, just for continuity's sake, just keep it going with whoever the guest is. Now, and- just in case the listeners are, um, or maybe the, the guest hasn't heard the last several episodes or this series on acting, give us a, give us a thou- 10,000 foot view of what's been covered so far. I thank you. Yes. I forgot that you are an unsupportive friend. Yes. Um, and I will also cop to the fact that I barely remember right after we record it, um, what the topic is. So let me, uh, pull up the old website. Okay. So last week was actors who retired and sort of the note on which they retired the, the week before that, Scott and I was here talking about uh, actors as auteurs. Uh, we did take a break for our Halloween episode, but then before that, we did uh, challenging dual roles. Um, and, I th- and then uh, we took a break for our, uh, our profile episode, but we did physical transformations. We did one about accents. Uh, we did one called uh, debutante actors, which is like when an actor like really... Uh, emerges and then you see them everywhere. Uh, and now that I and now that I look at, it, I realize like, oh, these actually weren't all in a row. It was more just kind of an just sort of a, a loose series. So uh, so I probably could have waited for him. And in fact, uh, I think I will. So everybody, thank you so much for listening in on us thanks, talking thanks about for having me, Jason. All the best. Explicable fan favorite. Now I have to say. Um, so- <laughs> And if you can see, if you can see, well, you can't, I can, uh, Jason walked away from the computer, granted to go get something, but, uh, but yeah, it looked like uh, he was really committed to the bit. I know. I appreciate that. I thought Um, you were going to play me out. (laughs) Uh, okay. But yeah, so the episode, the, the episode idea that I had, and I don't exactly remember where it came from, uh, it's more just, you know, when you're talking about actors and their, you know, their contribution to film, you talk about like great performances or just a, or a great part or whatever it is. And it's, and it's, or, or obviously like a great career and that's fine. Uh, and it makes sense to do that. But I also think like, man, there are sometimes what I would just refer to as like just a moment and I'm willing to be a little bit loose with the term. Um, I'm willing to say it could be an entire scene or it could be a single look. It could be literally one second long or, you know, 10 minutes long. That feels, that might actually feel a little long to consider it a moment, but like, you know, and scenes are rarely 10 full minutes long, but, uh, but yeah, it could be a single line. It could be a monologue, whatever. I tried to keep it. It could be just a little bit of movement, just whatever it is that like, it just strikes you in, in that moment. And it just, you really just feel like the actor has done something in that moment. Like they've really, they have connected with the character in a way that is so organic and just feels completely real, uh, within the reality of, of the film. Um, and those moments are so electrifying. And what's fun is that it can be, you know, a movie star can do this, uh, a well-known character actor can do this, or just sort of those journeyman actors that you don't really even know the name of, but they just really, it's, it's, it's not 
unlike the the same impulse that caused me to pitch the uh, the Bruce McGill and the Insider Award for best performance under 15 minutes, um, where it's like he's so great in that movie. And you and I were recently uh, talking about uh, Ted Levine and Shutter Island, like just these these short, really memorable performances by actors that you've seen before, but you would rarely list them as your favorite actors and their their performances are are such that would never really be nominated for for anything and so but they but boy they have moments and so certainly so we each picked 10 great acting moments um now wait a minute okay the way you're explaining this okay sounds like it's great acting moments from sort of bit parts it, it can no it can be a, a lead performance or yeah, uh, or okay. a bit part it can be anything uh I the was nature about to throw out let's see my entire list yeah it's i have most of my list are are lead or supporting performances to be sure yeah um so but that's the thing is it's it's the the i don't know what it is but there's just something about like trying to recognize smaller things whether it be a smaller character in a larger movie or a smaller moment from a, a character that's that's there the whole time whatever it is mm -hmm. um <clears throat> there's just something about like you know because film and usually the movies that we really love are just yes it's great in the larger sense but it's made up of these little moments from a cinematography standpoint music whatever it is but uh, when an actor does that again, whether lead performance or a bit part, it just feels, it's just feels electric to me. Um, and so I figured I'd uh, reach out to our friend, Jason. He and I, uh, uh, acted in the past, both together and separately. Um, and, uh, and we often will talk about, uh, acting choices by uh, certain actors and, and that sort of thing. So, um, as no, I mentioned, gonna, like we, we were just talking about Ted Levine in, in Shutter Island. So like it's yeah, it's it, it made sense to me to uh, to bring you in on this. So some fun little some fun little notes about okay. this. I, I do love this topic because it's it, and I was telling. Well, I love it and I also hate it because mm -hmm. it was so much harder. It's so much harder to do this than to think of like favorite performances, whether right. it's lead supporting, whatever. Because I found myself looking at a lot of movies that I love and going, wait, what's like, what's that one moment yeah. that I would pick out from this? And I, I found, especially if I haven't seen it in a while, I'm like, oh man, I need to go watch, I need to rewatch this. Or, and so it was interesting. It was, it was just sort of an interesting sifting process. I really feel like I need about a month and a half to put this list together instead of the two days or whatever that I had. Um, yeah, it seemed like such a facile thing to me until I started to make my list, and I thought, not unlike, incidentally, a moment that uh, it did not make my my ten here, and this isn't necessarily my top ten; it's just ten that I'm I'm choosing because my list wound up being about twenty five. But one of them from my list is Alec Guinness at the end of Bridge on the River Kwai, where he says, "What have I done?" And that's absolutely how I felt uh, as I was started making my list, which is like, there are so like, there are so many movies out there. And a great movie could have like an amazing ensemble, and each one of those on each one of those actors could have like three moments in the one movie. Like yeah. if it's if we it's twelve angry men, Alex how Guinness. do you even? Oh, oh, okay. Because that was gonna that was actually my number ten. So I think I'm gonna pivot. Okay, let's do, do it. We could we could use it as a segue, or we can use it as a pivot. 
and okay, I can let's, put let's in somebody pivot. else. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we can talk about that moment at some point or not, and I'll I'll pivot my uh, my number ten. That's exciting. Okay. Um, but first, what I was going to say is, you know, as a as a former actor, and I wonder if you did this too. You know, looking back, I I sort of realized so much of my acting was really like high level mimicking. Sure. Um, in that most people my age or in the theater departments where we were, well, they weren't even very good mimics. So the fact that I was a better mimic than they were actor actually made it seem like I was a better actor. Um, but in fact, I think I was, I did a lot of, I did a lot more mimicking than I probably realized, especially in things where I, I thought I sort of had an, an angle on a character, like, I would kind of do impressions of how I thought Nathan Lane would do a character or Kevin Spacey would do a character or, you know, and it's like, Oh, I think this, this kind of feels like, I I remember shows where I was like, there's a Kramer moment here and there's a Seinfeld moment here. And I'm basically just going to do an impression of those characters in those moments and hope that people kind of let it make sense. And some, and it, it normally worked out, but so, so in terms of like thinking of actor gestures, that is something I did a lot and paid a lot of attention to. I remember even after I stopped acting, like, um, uh, or actually I was, I guess I was still acting, but two big ones were when, when I saw Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York, mm-hmm. something about the way he carried his mouth, I started, I found myself trying to emulate that to try to feel what, what it looked like for him to do what he was doing with his mouth. I sort of tried to, to emulate that. And then I'm sure a lot of people did this, but Heath Ledger's Joker, I sort of tried oh my, to, yeah. you know, just to sort of see like, okay, so what's he do it? Like, what are, how can I break down those ticks and those performative things into little things that I can copy and can I copy that? And how does, yeah. and it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a way of trying to think about the character. Um, but yeah, so so in that respect, those sort of sort of breaking down uh, whole performances into these smaller moments is something that I that I enjoy. So I'm excited to do it. I'm nervous to do it. I, I feel like my entire list should be a giant caveat. Um, yeah. Of, oh, of course. And and I'm fine with uh, with revisiting this. And it's and also it can be fun, you know, if people in the comments want to leave some of their favorite moments uh, as well. Because, um, yeah, it's like I, I basically made we're going to do 10. I made a list of 25 and it, it was only 25 because I said I need to stop somewhere. And so yeah. I just stopped there. And now, then, and then an picking three one. Yeah. Why don't why don't you what do you, what do you think of that Alec Guinness moment at the end of Bridge on the River Kwai? Well, you know, it's it's so interesting. I think of I think of something that I I I heard James Woods say in the commentary of Videodrome, where he there's a moment where his character says, "What do you mean?" And James Woods, who yes, I recognize since then has just gone around the bend uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but it can be, it's always interesting when, when certain people talk about acting, like you don't expect James Woods to talk about acting. Cause it's just, his persona doesn't seem like the guy, like the type who would give a shit. Right. Uh, but he talks about, he goes, he goes, yeah, you know, when you get a line, like, what do you mean? It's such a common line that you have to say in maybe even every movie you've ever been in. Uh, and you have to find a way to say it. 
different because this character means it so different, you know, so differently than, than this other character. There's so much, there, there could be more or less behind it. It could be dire or casual, whatever it is. And so I think of that moment uh, with Alec Guinness and Bridge on the Require. And it's like, what have I done is such a, it's not as common a phrase as what do you mean, but it is a moment that we, that whether it's verbalized or it's visualized in other, in other movies, we have seen it before. Mm -hmm. And, and even by then, I mean, that's 1957. uh, But even by then it's, it's a common concept. What have I done? And I mean, Alec Guinness's performance in that movie in general is just masterful and just when he chooses to underplay things, uh, which is which is most of the time, uh, but there aren't many moments of true vulnerability from him, and and he's not actually a very introspective character. Uh, he lives by duty, and in that moment, when it's you know too late in a lot of ways, he says, "What have I done?" And it's he says it in kind of a matter of fact way. He doesn't he doesn't make it operatic and it could have been certainly in a film like that. It could have been, uh, it's just, it truly is a moment of clarity and he plays it. He plays it as, as a moment of realization, but doesn't, he doesn't play the essence of it. He just plays it. He just plays it completely in the moment and immediate, uh, and, you know, it, obviously it has a lot of weight for the character, but he doesn't play it for every bit of weight that that statement can ever have. And I love yeah, he it. It's such he a it, chew on it. Exactly. And, and I remember, so, and which makes it more powerful, I think, especially yeah. for a character like that. And so and now there's a great moment yeah. right before it where he sees William Holden and, yeah. and talk about exchanges that we've seen a million times, especially, you know, since then. But he sees William Holden and he says, you. Yeah. And William Holden says, you. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing that triggers the chain reaction to his realization. Like, yeah. why am I seeing this person? I know who that is. He, oh, oh, no. Yeah. You know, and uh, and so even it's it's interesting that both of those are things that maybe, at, I, I don't know about at the time, but certainly now are pretty common. Yeah. And yet it does them so genuinely that it really works. Yeah, it's uh yeah, that wasn't you know what? Hang on a second. I think I uh I only selected nine with the tenth being like uh it's like, oh, we'll sort of we'll incorporate it as it as it uh as the situation requires. So okay. I'm fine with let's I'm fine with that being essentially my my tenth. Again, these for me, these aren't in any particular order. Tenth doesn't mean my least favorite or anything like that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's just the order that I'm going to talk about them. In. Yeah. Um, so I'll begin then. Uh, I'm going to begin in 1986. Okay. Uh, with um, a, a, a performance in a movie I just rewatched. I've seen it many times, but uh, which is Sigourney Weaver as Ripley in Aliens. Okay. And it's the scene where she's putting Newt down for a nap. And, you know, we've learned that Ripley's, Ripley's daughter is dead. And, of course, Newt's whole family is dead. Yeah. And, you know, she's, she's sort of telling the girl, you know, you're going to be safe and all this stuff. And 
the newt says cross your heart and she says cross my heart and then the the only time something so sweet has been so chilling and she just says hope to die and the way sigourney weaver says hope to die yeah. it's like it is so loving and yet there's been so much death already and we're pretty sure there's going to be a lot more death that it is it is such an odd but beautiful moment um and i love that movie in general and this time this has never happened but this time the most recent time i watched it a, a week or so ago um i found myself like tearing up yeah at that moment just really the weight of and it's so nice when when somebody like I mean, because she hits it, but it's a quiet moment. It's not, you know, there's not a beat before it where it's like, oh, she's thinking of her daughter and now she's going to say, right. you know, it's like, it's it's still seemingly just about the two of them. But as the audience, we're just filling in so much of their, of their we're just so thinking about both of their stories and what they've both been through. Yeah, every scene, again, so now I'm talking about the larger performance, but I will say, Similarly, every scene with Newt is just such a different. It's not a. It's not night and day. We absolutely do believe that the same Ripley that is talking to Newt like that is also, you know, getting angry at Burke and all that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um, but I remember when she first is like cleaning Newt's face, and there's just such a certain type of casualness with which she says, "She goes up." Oh, I made a clean spot. Now I've done it. And it's just such a, you know, you're a father. I'm, I'm a a fairly recent father. And so the way I interact with my kids, like they're not, they're not talking back with words, but there is a certain tone that you adopt um, when talking to a young child and it's gentle. There's a, there's sometimes a little, a bit of silliness to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that moment really strikes me. And then there, yeah, that little, it's, it's it's like a half pause. It's a it's a beat, yeah. I guess you'd say, before she says hope to die, uh, and yet she says it with such such a gentleness, uh, you know. And, and you understand when you see moments like that, you understand why she was nominated for an Oscar for Aliens. Totally. You know, it's and you know in movies like that, you don't often get acting nominations, but it makes sense why you would with her. Um, okay, so speaking of let's say a certain type of gentleness and um, and a, a reaction. Now I did, uh, I did cheat a little bit. All right. Because this is, this is one scene and it's a moment that is equal between the two actors. And it's one that I often play uh, for uh, students when talking about acting. And it is the last scene of you can count on me between Mm. Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo. If you want, I mean, any, if there are any actors out there and you want to see what it looks like to react, to just to, to watch an actor really listen to the other actor and react and just be so present. That is the scene. Uh, the whole movie is marvelous, of course. And, and uh, you know, Kenneth Lonergan, I think, just a- is able to get things out of his actors. But that scene between these, uh, it's a brother and a sister, and they've had a falling out. And he, his instinct is usually to leave. 
you know, not usually it's pretty much always to leave. And his sister is in this place where like, she's, she feels bad. She feels a certain degree of bad that like, Oh, I'm driving him away, but also like, but this might need to happen because I need to protect my son, but I don't want to drive my brother away. And he is in this place where he's kind of gotten to a better place emotionally where he's, he's not leaving purely out of rebellion or fear or anything like that. He's leaving because his life is elsewhere. And so he's reassure, he's trying to reassure her that he's going to be fine. And she is trying to say like, and she's trying to talk about like all of her fears. And even though he's the one reassuring her, you 100% get the older sister, younger brother dynamic. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, like, and there's, there's a moment where she starts to well up and he's not talking, but you can see he's welling up too. Like, and that's, and he, he's not the type that does that, that like the character doesn't, but you can see that he's so empath, he's so tuned into her and so empathetic to her right now, the way siblings can be in certain moments. Uh, and it's such a beauty. And yeah, it's, of course it's an important moment in the, in the film, but, and this is the, the beauty of Kenneth Lonergan is like, he can find poetry in, pretty straightforward lines. There's really nothing particularly poetic in the lines themselves, but in just the way that these characters, you know, so as is going to be the case with almost any of these moments, the writing is, is, is helping them a lot, but there is a way to do this wrong. uh, Or there's a way that you don't get this kind of sibling chemistry that you do. Uh, But they really do. And it's a, it's a beautiful movie all around, but like that moment is some of the best, acting and and reacting i've ever seen Mm. now is this it's been so long since i've seen it so i'm literally looking it up is this is it on like a bench yes okay that's the one yeah man yeah i i don't remember i actually don't remember a lot about that movie but i do remember their dynamic and i wasn't I don't. I I didn't know who Kenneth Lonergan was really, and I didn't really right. understand his his way. So I remember being a little confused at first about like, wait, like, is she happy that he's leaving or not happy that he's leaving? Right. And then you know you grow up a little bit and you're like, well, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a marvelous film. So what it what's hit me? What's what's next? All right. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, Kill Bill volume two, okay. um, Uma Thurman as the bride. And it is a scene, you know, I, it was, it was one of those times. I think maybe Tarantino doesn't get enough credit sometimes for, I know we're talking about actors, but he doesn't get enough credit sometimes for his moments of vulnerability and it's the moment where uh, the bride has just found, she's not really, I mean, she's still very much an assassin mm-hmm. and she just finds out she's pregnant. So it's in a flashback. And as she finds out she's pregnant, an assassin has, uh, has come to kill her, um, a rival assassin. And so she ends up having a conversation with the assassin. They both got guns on each other. And she has this moment where she says like, Basically, we could kill each other, but like right now, I'm just scared shitless for my baby. Yeah. And it's this it's the moment when all of her priorities have changed. Yeah. And 
the way, and it, there's like a way, you know, there's a nice feet moment. There's a nice foot moment in that scene, I think, where she's sort of waiting for the test and she's sort of crunching her feet and just sort of nervously doing it. And we have seen, you know, this is volume two. So we've seen this woman mow down, you know, the crazy 88 and take out all these other people. And in this moment, it is just a woman thinking about her life, thinking about what are my priorities? What decisions do I need to make? And I just think it is just marvelous because she's, I think sometimes um, maybe female badasses uh, don't realize that vulnerability can also be badass and mm -hmm. that, it actually doesn't detract from your power as a character. Yeah. Um, and I am like, I, I couldn't be, I thought I couldn't be more on board with her. And then I see this scene and I'm like, oh, now my, like my brain was with her. I was like, loved watching her kick ass. And then this thing, your heart just goes out to her. You're, it just like, it sort of breaks in a weird way because you, you sort of know what, her decision is going to lead to and she doesn't um but you just feel so much for her in that moment yeah it's uh yeah and it goes i mean it goes to what you were saying about uh ripley as well i think so much male or female but i do think that there is this there especially these days i think there's a lot of pressure on actresses that like hey if you're playing a you know all capital all capitals like strong female character that this is how you need to be. You can't show vulnerabilities. Like, well, some, some of the, like some of people's favorite male action heroes are ones that showed vulnerability, like uh, an Indiana Jones or a John McClane, like the ones who showed that they weren't invincible, like physically or emotionally. And so, yeah. Um, so like people actually do like to see that their characters are, are human. Um, yeah. Okay. But, so I'm going to, I'm going to pair this, sorry, before you okay. move on to yours, I'm going to pair this with another performance I had considered, but I'm not going to put on this list, which is Gwyneth Paltrow in seven, mm. um, which is a, it's, it's another moment of someone find a, another woman finding out she's pregnant. So that's why I'm kind of putting it together. Couldn't be more different than the bride. Um, but it is a very, um, you could probably say I'm, a very masculine movie or a masculine feeling movie. It's dark and it's gritty and it's angry and it's brooding. Um, but absent that scene, her scene in the diner with Morgan Freeman, yeah, uh, nothing that happens in the last 20 minutes of the movie has, would have the impact that it does. Right. And there's, there's one scene and I was like, you know, it, you can almost like point to it and, you know, accuse David Fincher of having a heart. And it's when Morgan Freeman basically says, if you do decide to have this child, yeah. you know, you spoil it every chance <laughs> you get. And her face just crumbles. Yeah. And she is, feels so, she feels so relieved that she's getting this advice from this guy. Um, and, and also is just torn about what to do. Yeah. Um, so I'll just, I, I, I mean, that moment, it has long been like one of my favorite moments um, in probably in cinema history, I, I love seven. I'm, I flip out for seven and I love that she gets that, that crucial scene. Um, yeah, that is the beating heart of the movie quite literally. So anyway, I wanted to slap those together so that I don't have to use another pick for it. All right, you go. 
All right. Well, actually, uh, just, you know, just to keep look, just to keep the pregnancy train going, uh, I assure you, not all of my moments are like the final moments of the movie, but uh, there are uh, about three of them in here. Um, But uh, the final scene in Fargo between Mm -hmm. France McDormand and John Carroll Lynch, uh, but but her especially, uh, he's wonderful and he is definitely an alternate here for the movie Zodiac. Um, but uh, that moment, like... So right after... Oh, so see, I, you said the ending. I, of course, immediately thought of the car, but it's, it isn't... That's oh, it's not the, the it's, final scene. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the, 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 the absolute last scene. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's the moment where he's talking about how, he's, how he got the three-cent stamp. Yeah. And she just... And she goes... And he's just like... He's kind of proud, but he doesn't want to give himself permission to be proud because he also recognizes that, like, this is not the greatest achievement in the world. But she just says, like, well, hey, no. And she and her her tone just shifts to one of like of love and really trying to not treating. She's not treating him like a child or anything like that, but she's trying to, like, cut through the self-deprecation and help Mm -hmm. him to see that this is an achievement. And it reminded me uh, many years ago when I worked at Blockbuster in Studio City and there was this guy who came in and at the time at Blockbuster, you could, anything you rented, you could like uh, convert it to a sale. And so there was this movie, I don't, I do not remember the name of it. I think it was Decoys. It was just like a straight to video horror movie. Okay. And so this guy walks up with his girlfriend and he goes, and we weren't selling it. We were just renting it. And he goes, Hey, can we convert that to a sale? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so, but in order to do that, you do need to rent it to them first. So I pull right. up his account and I see the name on the account and I see the name above the title of decoys. And I say, Hey, is now, that what you? year was this? What year was this? Do you it was think? like uh, 2007. Okay. Now, is it possible that it was decoys to alien seduction? Uh, that's also very possible. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, uh, because now that I think about it, yeah, it's, I think the guy was like maybe in the first decoys, but he had his name above the title in the second one. Um, <clears throat> so now I said, every, all the listeners are way ahead of us, but that's Corey Sevier. That's him. Yes. Uh, I was reluctant to say his name and I don't know why. Um <clears throat> Cause this interaction doesn't make him look bad or anything. Uh, and so I said like, Hey, is that you? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, Hey, that's great. He goes, yeah, it's fine. And then his girlfriend, I just wanted to hug her. She goes, she goes, no, it's very exciting. And <laughs> she's like, just trying to like, it, it's that same instinct that, that I think people who love each other, like, you know, obviously like you want to be humble, but also th- sometimes there's reasons to be humble. Like, yeah, three yes. cent stamp, not that exciting. Decoys too, not that exciting uh, in the moment, but it's exciting enough to warrant excitement. And, yes. and just like, and Marge having seen everything that she's just seen that she can, that she still has that, that lovely, that loving, you know, motherly but but you know just spousely uh instinct uh it just feels so real and not patronizing uh it just it's it was immediately recognizable to me uh and then also then she goes from there and she pivots and she says heck norm you know we're doing pretty good and it's just such a 
again, just such a matter of fact way of saying that. And yet it has all the weight in the world again, Mm -hmm. having seen, and it feels like having seen everything that she's just seen and having seen what William H. Macy's character has thrown away because what he had was not enough for him. Uh, She, her saying like, after this moment of comforting her, her husband and saying like, Hey, we're doing pretty good, you know, and this is the same person whose squad car needed a jump early on. Like people might say they're not doing that good, but they're doing pretty good. And that's enough for her. And it's a a wonderful moment. Yeah. I mean, so much of the, you know, so much of that scene I was referencing right before it is sort of talking about what your priorities are. You know, she's saying for a little bit of money and and it's such a beautiful day. Um, And then this scene and, and it's that Coen brothers way where the writing is really, is actually is is exceptional but it's really understated and it's not like they're not saying anything poetic or philosophical or anything heck we're doing pretty good like it couldn't it's such a simple thing to say but when it when it really speaks to your true priorities then it actually carries quite a bit of weight yeah uh okay so what's uh what's next for you all right let's find out oh boy okay um, this is, uh, I, I, yeah, uh, I think this is really my only, well, there's kind of one other comedic thing on here, so I won't quite say that. Uh, it is Buster Keaton in Sherlock Jr., um, which is my favorite Buster Keaton moment. Now, this is not the biggest, most ostentatious Buster Keaton moment. It's not like, you know, it's not blowing up the bridge in the general or even like throwing the plank um, but yeah. it's this great little character beat. And it's one of my favorite sequences in any Buster Keaton movie, which is he's imagined himself in the movies um, and he's imagined himself being a detective who's brought in to find some stolen pearls at this place. And the, the people who've stolen it uh, <laughs> decide that they're going to kill him because he's a famous detective. And so they need to kill him by... Uh, they're going to play a game of pool and they're going to, they put an exploding pool ball yeah. in, in the middle of the table. And not only is it so impressive to just watch Buster Keaton with all the like ridiculous confidence in the world, just <laughs> shooting pool yeah. and somehow miraculously uh, hitting all the balls, except that one so that it yeah. just stays perfectly still. And the two sort of uh, thieves are out, because you know they don't want to get blown up by the bomb pool ball, which I don't know how they got that on such short notice. Yeah. Um, but and so they keep looking in, and then like one of them will gesture ridiculously to like say like, "Oh, the ball went like all the balls went around, but it didn't. It yeah. didn't knock it out." And so he goes through this, and then there's only one ball left, and it's the ball, the exploding ball, and he just whoop, boom knocks it in, and they're like what happened? And he walks out past them, closes the door. And then with just a little bit of look at me, pulls out the ball that he had, the, the actual bomb, which he had pocketed. Yeah. And as he pulls it out, he fumbles it and he kick, bumps it off his knee, kicks it off his foot and yeah. grabs it and like trips. And I don't know, like that says everything about Buster Keaton to me, like the confidence, but also the, the buffoonery um and it's sort of like it's everything he wants to be but is sort of slapped together in one moment and i just i just think it's 
I think Buster Keaton is magic. Uh, and so that, that is, that's long been one of my favorite Buster Keaton bits. And the moments of buffoonery that then reveal the skill, you know, yeah. like if he hadn't started to drop the ball, then he wouldn't have this wonderful little bit of a uh, hacky sack going on uh, that, because I know the moment you're talking about and it's, and it's marvelous. And yeah. And of course it's when you come, when it comes to, you know, silent comedy, you have a lot of moments because they were thinking mm -hmm. in terms of, of gags, like, yeah. like large set piece, comic set pieces, but within that several little gags. Uh, and yeah. And that's such a nice little uh, coda to that, uh, to that sequence. Yeah. Um, and it's a coda that, that does uh, reveal character and speak to character. So it's both, it's, it's a very, I wanted a very physical moment um, on this list, but also one that was grounded in character as well. Uh, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and use that to bring up a silent performance, but it's not in a silent film. It's a moment of silence. Uh, and you and you knew ahead of time. I, I, I told you this as an example. Uh, in my favorite film of 2011, Moneyball, which I don't know in retrospect if it is still my favorite, but it certainly was at the time. And it's still a film that I love. Uh, and it does feature uh, a performance uh, from Brad Pitt that I think deserved an Oscar. I thought he was so wonderful in that in that role like that is as amazing as he is in once upon a time in hollywood and boy he sure is uh i think he deserved let's say i think he deserved his first oscar for moneyball um what and that, in that year i don't remember it was jean de jardin an actual oh, silent okay. performance <laughs> there you go yeah. i didn't even mean to do that but um but yeah and so and obviously it's a very physical performance as it needs to be like the character mm -hmm. is an athlete uh, but there's this wonderful moment where like you, you also get a sense like, man, this guy's angry. He's just like full of rage all the time, but it really comes out when his team has lost once again. And, you know, there's stuff on the line now because he's doing an experiment that is very public and his team has lost again. So once again, he's being shown to be a, 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 a moron in the world of baseball mm -hmm. And so he's he's angry. He's like storming through the, the hallways and he hears music playing and he goes into the into the locker room. And, and having just lost the game, the players are, are having a party. And I mean, before we even get to the moment I'm talking like you can just see the barely contained rage and he never yells. He never yells. He does maybe something worse, which is he uh, bashes something with a baseball bat. Uh, and he's saying like, you know, what do you have? Like, do you think losing is fun? What are you having fun for? But then it leads to him. He throws a chair and there's just complete silence. And then he, he does this thing where he like lifts his, his finger up as if to say like, okay, listen, listen, listen. And it's just silence. That's what losing sounds like. And it is such a man, it is such a shaming of everybody else and such a moment of almost a moment of self-hatred, uh, maybe not self-hatred, but, you know, the shame that he's putting on them, he's also maybe feeling for himself, like, oh, yes, as if say, like, this is how I've been feeling. It is astonishing to me that you don't feel it, too. I'm going to make you feel it because I feel so horrible and I'm so angry at myself for going down this path and be, and maybe being shown to be wrong. Like 
rather than try and make myself feel better, uh, I need to make all of you feel worse. That's how bad I'm feeling. And yeah. it's, it is a, and that look and knowing exactly how long to hold that pause any shorter, it wouldn't quite have the impact any longer. And it's like, okay, we got it. It needs to be exactly, I don't know how many seconds it was, probably about five, maybe seven, you know, not, not very long, but then, and then he, and then he, he does a little like dot in the air. Like that's what losing sounds like as if say like, yeah. okay, you, everyone got it. Everyone got that silence. And it's such, it's, it's a moment that like that I think it's very well written, but that moment is pure performance. Like mm-hmm. it's the kind of thing that will only be truly conveyed through an actor who has such a sense of timing and understands what the character is feeling and what he is trying to convey. And it is boy, man, like the, again, whole performance is great. And obviously, you know, I, I could easily talk about just the long sequence of phone calls in his office where he's trying to like trade this player for that player. But that moment to me is the character moment and it's a, a marvelous yeah, it's, performance. Yeah. It's, it's the moment of the movie for me. Yeah. Uh, there is a great bit of physical physicality in that phone sequence where he has like popcorn in like a, <laughs> Yeah. I think it's in like a coffee. Uh, yeah. Whatever. What, what do you call it? Like the coffee filter. The filter. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But he's got like popcorn in it and he's like thinking and he just like grabs it and stuffs a fistful <laughs> in his mouth and just like chomping. He's like, man, I want, I want that player. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so obviously, uh, you know, is it Billy Bean? I think that's the character. Billy Bean. Name. Yeah. Uh, he does. He is not Ted. La- he's like the anti-Ted Lasso because Ted Lasso is all about like, oh, it doesn't matter if we w- win or lose. It's about, you know, what the experience is and growing as players and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, there's there's a couple other layers that I love for that as a as someone who played sports through high school. Like I hated losing. I hated losing, and I I was so angry after losing. And he is a former player. And he didn't make it. And so there's an added layer of shame where he cannot go out there and force a win to occur. Yeah. So the, the least uh, he, he at least demands that the players that he employs will go out there on his behalf. It's almost, it's very much a, you let me down. And so you have to feel what I can't feel now or or you have to feel how i feel because i can't i can't be the one out there swinging the bat if you're going to represent me on the field then you know what you damn well better represent me off the field in this regard yeah uh okay so i don't i don't know if you know anything about baseball tyler i don't know i know you you've you've been to many games but you don't Mm. follow baseball or anything i do not um baseball is the weirdest sport um to me in that if you sort of look back like nobody wins 80% of their games. That would be insane. Like if you win a hundred games out of your 160, that's an incredible achievement. And year to year, like year to year in basketball, year to year in football. I'm not sure about hockey. Who cares about hockey? Sorry, David. Um, But the, the, like the number one teams usually fluctuate with much greater uh, rapidity in baseball than they do in other sports because there is so much it's who's up to bat versus what pitcher versus all that uh, like 
the percentages of everything in baseball are much, much lower. It's like you can't fail 70% of the time in other sports and be considered very successful. But that's what if you hit 300 as yeah. a hitter, it's like, damn, you are like crushing it, which hmm. means seven out of 10 at bats, you don't get on base. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. We don't have a lot of sports that are that heavily weighted toward defense. Um, football in a given game can be, but baseball is is just such a wonderful anomaly. So the fact that he's like, they're going to lose 60, 65 times a year. That should be expected yeah. for Billy Bean. And that is how he wants everyone to feel after every one of those losses. <laughs> yeah. It kind of like just that. That was kind of the point I was trying to drive. Yeah. I think it's safe to say, yeah, his character doesn't have the healthiest uh, attitude towards winning and losing. I don't understand. I'm I'm trying to be just like him. All um, right. Okay. Okay. Uh, my next uh, performance is Jeff. Go- We're going back to 1986. You know, when Goldblum. you when you said 86, I assumed you were going the fly, yeah. and it's you wound up there eventually. I did. And this is kind of one of my cheats where, um, you know, you could just as much choose Gina Davis in this scene, but it's mm. basically where he like talks about insect politics and mm. then says, you know, I'm a, I'm an insect that dreamed he was a man, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. Yeah. And Gina Davis is just like, I mean, she's literally seeing the person she loves disintegrate before her eyes and yeah. then tell her, the person you love is no longer here. Um, and there is a warning in that. And there is a threat in that. And one of the, I mean, so again, Gina Davis is doing amazing work in this and is so vulnerable and you just, your heart breaks for her. But Goldblum is doing something that is quite difficult, which there is quite a lot of makeup on him. Yeah. And yet his eyes are conveying it, you know, the, the eyes are everything in cinema and his eyes are 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 carrying this performance because he's so covered and yet you are truly disturbed by how he's moving his body and what yeah. he is showing you um yeah he's basically saying i i kind of don't care if we were in love once like i'll kill you um yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you could say it's the moment he dies in a way. And it's such a, when he, cause yeah, he, I believe he ends by saying, I'll hurt you if you stay. Yes. And that's not a, it's not a threat. Like, Hey, if you stay, I'm going to hurt. Like, it's not that it's stop doing this thing that I don't want you to do. It's more just the nature of what I am. It's, it's irreversible now. Mm-hmm. Like, it's irreversible. It's inevitable. Yeah. It, and, and so and that's when, why I said, yeah, there's a little bit of a warning and there is also a little bit of a threat. Like I, I won't, I won't be able to stop this or, and yeah. I won't stop this. Yeah. And just, and, and when he's, and he precedes that by talking about insect politics and like, they don't have politics. They're very brutal. We can't trust the insect. And he just, mm-hmm. and leading that into, it's like, and by the way, that's me now. Yeah. And the fact that I can say this is maybe the last bit of humanity <laughs> that I have left mm-hmm. warning you is kind of all I can do now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it, 
it's so heartbreaking and so disturbing at the same time, uh, which is the nature of that entire movie. Um, so, uh, and speaking of such things, now we'll go to a, a lesser known movie, but one that I've been championing for a long time. And that is the movie Mean Creek, mm. uh, which has a lot of great moments, but Josh Peck as the bully uh, whose name I don't recall. I just know him as the bully who has just been kind of, t- and he's, he's an overweight kid and he, a lot of kids decide they're going to get revenge on him. And so they essentially stage a birthday party and invite him. And it's basically just like a little float trip, like down the, down the river. And you see no indication of the bully there. You get the impression like, Oh, like now that he feels accepted, there's nothing there. There might be a little bit of like awkward, like Joshin and stuff. I don't say that because his name's Josh Peck. Uh, he, he can't help but Josh people with that name, but uh, it's, it's still that kind of awkward teenage thing as well. Yeah. But for the most part, he's, he's, and he's also trying to be very polite. Uh, and it's, and then there's a moment that this isn't the moment I wanted to talk about, but like, there's a moment where it's like, he goes, I don't even remember the exact line, but he, he makes reference. To, he just says like, he's like, there's nothing like hanging out with a bunch of buds, like on the river or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And it's just such a, and it's enough that other people, they're all thinking like, Oh, we, maybe we don't want to do this. We don't want to, <laughs> you know, get our revenge. Cause we kind of have a better sense of who he is. But then the moment comes where he, you know, his, he hasn't gone into bully mode, but he's maybe pushing other characters a little far. Um, and then they reveal what their plan was essentially telling him, yeah, you thought you were accepted. You're not. Mm-hmm. And you see the change and it might be a little bit too, it might be a little bit too uh, black and white. Um, but I think Josh Peck does a great job with it because it's not like, it's not Jekyll and Hyde where it's just immediate. It starts with him just lashing out and you can, Oh my gosh, you can see the pain that he is in. And obviously he's saying horrible things to other people. Um, and so you can see the pain that he's inflicting, but you see where it comes from now. And you can, you can almost, you can see him put up this shield of rage to keep, to keep him from feeling what he's feeling. And it, he's just lashing out at everyone, just going one by one. And there's one there's one kid whose father killed himself. And Josh Peck is talking to this other kid who has two fathers. And he says, he goes like, he goes, I like, I hope they fucking die. Like he's like saying horrible things. And then he pauses and he goes, Oh, and speaking of dead fathers, and it's just like, and that's the moment where it's like he now feels like he is in control because as someone who, while never, uh, never like a physical bully, I definitely did like in middle school. Cause I was not a big fan of myself. Uh, I, I definitely like put up a, put up a wall and could be kind of mean to people, uh, to try to feel, you know, feel better about myself. Like I definitely get the, the instinct to like, if I'm reliant on other people's acceptance, then there are things that are out of my control. And over the course of that monologue, you see him feel hurt. You see him put up again, put up that shield. And then finally you see him get to a point where he feels like, all right, now I am in control. 
mm-hmm. they don't ha- they don't ha- they don't control me anymore like through just this this poisonous monologue he gets what he sees as as control and it's horrible what he's saying to other people it's horrible where it comes from and it's heartbreaking to see because he is just a kid you know i mean he may be like i think he's like maybe what 14 or 15 if that you know like old enough to be responsible for what he's saying but not not really you know Mm -hmm. and that whole sequence is so and that performance is so powerful precisely because he doesn't there is a moment where he kind of does go full supervillain but he get the his journey there emotionally you can see every step and every step is a tragic one uh because you don't you don't want it you don't want him to get there but you know he's going to you do and you know like you know, if the other characters were themselves a little bit older, they might be able to recognize the tactic. Yeah. They might be able to see, oh, this is all, like, this guy's just grasping at straws and trying to get a rise out of us. Yeah. It's actually really sad, but they're not quite old enough to get there. So you feel, you, you feel the tragedy sort of all around. You want him to stop talking, but you know he's not going to, and yeah. you know that they're not going to respond in an understandable way. Yeah. Like, and, and it's just going to turn to shit. Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly it's a film that I've recommended up and down on this show, but I, I don't know if I've ever gone into that much detail, but that moment, is like like anything else it's it is well written and the whole ensemble has a part to play there but it's definitely his moment and if he if he played it too evil yeah if he condemned the character uh outright then i think it wouldn't have played as tragic as it is yeah um let's see okay well i don't think i have anything quite that tragic to pair okay Okay, so good that was that was the tragedy of the fly we could pair it with that there we go Uh, so so now i'm gonna move on to um i almost i was telling you i almost didn't put this one on my list because it is i was i really wanted to choose moments that weren't um i guess filmmaker or writer intensive i didn't want moments that really relied on what the camera is doing um and this one doesn't entirely, although it's it it's a little bit showy, especially as you watch it a few times. It's uh, Faye Dunaway in Network. There's this great sequence where she and William Holden are basically having an affair, um, and but instead of like like they're at dinner and then they're going to go back to the room and have sex, and instead of like romantic talk, she is she's the only one who speaks. And it is just a constant monologue of the interworkings going on at the network, like arguing with the government and thinking that everyone's going to get thrown in jail and not giving a shit because they're basically sort of kind of encouraging terrorism. And, yeah. uh, and, and it goes from like the restaurant all the way back to their room as they're getting undressed and as they have sex. And then her pillow talk after sort of, um, the act is for her to go, oh, I think I want to, 
I think I'm going to pitch a homosexual soap opera where uh, a woman is in love with her husband's mistress. And she's like, <laughs> yeah, William Holden is just caressing her. And it is kind of wickedly funny yeah, because it shows just the callousness of her and where her priorities are and, and just how, how kind of transactional this actually is for her, how, how little emotion she actually has to invest in it Um, and sort of how empty she is as a person, but it's really funny to watch. And and you're like, it's confusing, especially, you know, we both saw it when we were teenagers, you don't really understand the humor at that point. You're just kind of confused because you haven't really seen a sequence that you, you kind of recognize the visuals, but you don't really understand why you're hearing what you're hearing, but you can't quite put it together. And then as you get older, it just gets funnier and funnier. And, you know, it's, I do love, I love that sequence. And I think one, I think the the brilliance of it is the build. Um, and, and again, that is from a writing and directing standpoint and an acting standpoint, but like, you know, you're married, I'm married. And like, we've both had, you have moments where like, you're just talking about your work and and you're talking about it maybe at length and just kind of either it's a complaint or you're just updating each other. It's just kind of how things go. And so just, you know, the, the, this monologue takes place over multiple places uh, or multiple settings and multiple activities. And the first couple places, it just kind of makes sense. Sure. They're like, yeah, she's just talking, you know, eh, she's talking about her job a lot. He's not really being able to get a word in edgewise. Eh, it kind of happens. And then it just keeps going and Faye Dunaway, but she plays obviously like when she's, when they're having sex, like she's, she's adding like a quiver to a voice and that kind of thing. But like, she's, she's not, she, she's never really winking at us to suggest no. like, isn't this fucking crazy with this, this, this woman is, uh, is doing this the whole time. She's just, it just doesn't occur to her. She's not, she's, she, you know, uh, like, uh, like other characters we mentioned, she's not particularly introspective. It never really, she never thinks like, this probably isn't the time. Right. Uh, (laughs) Right. uh, And I think it's, it's, it's possible that she's, she could be that like, this is kind of how she needs, this is maybe what she needs in order Mm -hmm. to get in the mood. Um, Yeah. It's, it's a hilarious performance, but but not a self-conscious one. No. And it really, you know, it, yes, that is very much writing to sort of have it take place over the multiple locations, but it is also very performance driven in that she has to build the monologue and not wink at us. And so we just get like this undercurrent of, what the hell's going on yeah. you know but she so she has to build the 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 performance and build to a series of climaxes yeah if i can say put it delicately i guess yeah um okay so let's see I'm trying to think what i can yeah okay here we go <clears throat> i'm going to mention barbara stanwick in uh the movie double indemnity uh who because I think an argument could be made that Diana Christensen in Network is is pretty uh, pretty icy, uh-huh. um, but nobody has anything on Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. Um, who, Boy, we're just talking all around William Holden tonight. 
Uh, yeah, I guess so. Well, now he's not, oh, wait, in, no, Dublin, he's not in Dublin. He's in, he's in the other one. He's in Sunset Thank Boulevard you. and Stalag 17. Um, no, it's Fred McMurray. And this is, it's not the last scene of the film, but it's, it's her, it's her big, you know, standoff essentially with mm-hmm. Fred McMurray, where we know that like, okay, they are not in it together anymore. <laughs> no, one of them is not walking out of this. And they're just kind of standing. They're just like sitting in uh, this room and they're, you know, exchanging banter. And, and both of them seem to be talking around the idea that like, we're going to try and kill each other. Right. Like that nobody says that, but that's basically it. <laughs> and there comes a moment. This is not a line. It's literally just a movement. You just see her expression change from like, you know, playful, but, uh, but like dangerous to just plain like, all right, fuck this shit. And she, and she throws her cigarette away. And the, the very deliberate movement with which she does that is just like, a. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying because you just know, because this is a very dangerous woman and you know that, but you also know like, Oh, but she also kind of likes to play games. Oh yeah. Games are over. Uh, We're, we're done now. And, and that she just gets this because if it were just the if it were just the movement, that would be one thing. If it were just the icy the 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 shift into icy determination, that would be another thing. It's the combination of the two, where again she can't literally say, "Okay, fuck all this." She can't say that, but it's basically that, and it's one of my favorite moments of the film. And it's and it's completely nonverbal. And it she she nails it. She hits it right out of the park. It is you know exactly where yeah. you are in the scene and where the scene is going after that. That is a great moment. I don't have much to say about it. I do love that moment, and I feel bad now because I was thinking of uh, Sunset Boulevard. Boulevard. It happens. Yeah, and and you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, <coughs> the character of Norman Desmond, played by. Uh, Gloria Swanson. Uh, yeah. She has plenty of great moments too. Uh, Billy, does, Wild, yeah. Billy Wilder comes up with a lot of good moments for people. Yeah. But anyway. Okay. What's next for you? All right. So I'm going to preface this this way. Um, my scene from Aliens, my moment from Aliens is sort of the plant to the payoff. Okay. Uh, this moment is going, you know, the payoff being get away from her, you bitch. Um, kind of like that that sort of motherly instinct is that's that's kind of planted in that scene with newt and then paid off there well the scene i'm going to talk about now is the payoff scene in lord of the rings uh for this relationship um and it's when uh samwise gamgee says let him go you filth to the spider and it's of course planted in the first movie when he basically says like Gandalf told me to go with you. And so, you know, I'm not leaving you. I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. And that third movie is really the, the payoff of, of that, of that promise. Yeah. And it's like, it is totally a hero shot and he's like holding the sword and he's ready to go. Um, and I just remember being in the theater and I, I didn't, I, I think I had heard that was probably going to happen. I kind of assumed it was going to happen. But when it did, it was so satisfying. And the courage that he's able to display. um, I I know you do as well. I I hate spiders. 
and I don't like killing them even. Um, yeah. I'm very timid. Because what, what if you miss? When you come what at the king, you, you best not miss. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess, yeah, as long as we're, we're quoting either Usual Suspects or The Wire. Uh, either way, you don't miss when you're coming at a monster. That's right. And who knows? You know, any given spider could actually be the devil. Yeah. Um, and so you don't want to you don't want to play with that. Um, but yeah, that I mean, I love the whole scene, but that's the moment when you're like, oh, thank God the friend is here and he's not going to let this happen. He yeah. even though Frodo has, you know, thrown him away and discarded him, he's not going to break that. He is going to fulfill that promise um, that he made. Yeah. And, you, you know, Samwise is adorably timid i wouldn't say cowardly but he i mean he's never been out of the shire uh no. and certainly by that time he's seen quite a bit and he's fought and all that so he's a little bit better able to 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 do it but like i mean when it comes right down to it, like he's out of his depth with that oh, spider completely like he's completely out of his depth yeah and he knows full well like this might there's a good chance this isn't going to go my way. Um, yeah. And even throughout the I'm fight, not gonna stop. Yeah. I'm constantly like, this was a bad decision. This yeah. Was a bad decision. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a great moment. Like, and as you, mo as you said, like it's, it's a, it's a, a heroic moment and there's probably temptation. And certainly the, the actors will sometimes play, it will actively play into those moments, but there mm -hmm. he actually, underplays it he doesn't say it loud he says it quietly uh and and because yeah in that moment like it's not a moment it's a moment of triumph for us it's yes. not a moment of triumph for him for him it's well i guess i'm about to die <laughs> but right. i'm gonna die for my friend yeah and that's a decision i've made you know and in both in both the cases both aliens and here it's a moment that is actually you know, the alien queen doesn't really benefit from that line, but it's a vocalization of how important this relationship is. Yeah. Um, and you also don't normally see hero shots that aren't meant comedically for characters who look like Sam. Yeah. Um, and yet when it happens, we, we see his courage so clearly that we just cheer him on. Um, yeah, and, and so that's a really that's also just sort of a, a powerful image of the Hobbit, the smallness, showing that kind of great courage. And I mean, I, I, I agree with people when they say that Lord of the Rings is more Sam's story than Frodo. I mean, certainly Frodo has moments of bravery. I mean, he volunteers to do this. Um, but, you know, when you mentioned that it was going to be a Sam moment, I assumed that you were going to say, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you, which mm -hmm. is such, I mean, just the concept of that, you know, makes me well up a little bit. Um, and that is like the, the, the final moment uh, yes. of triumph for him. It's like, I've done everything I can do to keep you safe. What's the next, what's the last thing I can do? It's like, well, the last thing I can do is literally carry you mm -hmm. because it's like, yeah, at that point, like it's not even just he's helping Frodo on his journey. It's like, no, now it's, it's his journey. Yeah. Frodo cannot complete it without him. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's uh, obviously good performance overall, but that is a really, that is a really nice moment and handled. I think again, as always well by the, by the director. Um, yeah. Let me see if I have anything heroic. <laughs> um, 
No, I don't. So you know what? Uh, I'm just going to mention this. Uh, this is, I mean, you know, when you say Meryl Streep, how do you even begin to to uh, to pick out which moment? Because her characters are so varied, and the moments are so numerous. Um, I did almost mention uh, something that actually is heroic, but I chose not to, uh, which is uh, in the post when she when her character finally decides to like, yeah, no, let's 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 run it. And you just see that moment of determination after quite a bit of uncertainty. It's a great moment. Um, but no, I'm actually picking now that you hold on before you do that, since you've mentioned the post, I almost have a Meryl Street post moment as well, oh. which is when uh, her grandkids are over and Tom Hanks comes to her basically to like start uh, talking about like what what they could do, what the story could be. And he's holding a ball and only she notices that her grandkid has come in and is trying to get the ball. And so eventually she's like trying to tell him and eventually she has to take the ball from him, I think, and give it to hmm. the kid. And it's this great little moment of, yes, she is this extremely powerful person, but she also has this other role. And it's this wonderfully humanizing moment. And it also kind of just says she has a whole lot more on her plate than, yeah. than he does. Anyway, sorry, that's a sort of a, that's a bonus moment, but I love. That's my favorite moment in that movie. Yeah, it's. I haven't seen the film since it came out, uh, and I would like to rewatch it because I love a good journalism journalism movie. But um, no, the the moment that I decided to go with uh, is this is the I believe the absolute last moment of Julie and Julia. So she's playing Julia Child. I have never seen this movie. Oh Thanks man! Thanks for spoiling it. Oh boy. <laughs> You are not going to see this coming. I'll say that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's sort of like the the sequence in The Shining where blood just comes, you know, down out of the elevators and down the hall. You don't expect that much gore at the end of Julie and Julia. Um, you know, working but, uh, with chicken can be dangerous, though. Oh, see what I was blooded. I was going to say. It might as well be called Julie versus Julia because, Ooh. and you know, one of them does not leave that Thunderdome. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, and so so she plays Julia Child, and Julia Child. I mean, just the way that she talked, the way that she moved was just so. You know, she was just sort of an odd person. Like, just her tone of voice was unusual, mm -hmm. uh, soothing in its own way. But if you're gonna play Julia Child, like it's it's tough. That's a tough thing to do without immediately going into parody. Um, yeah. You know, like Julia Child was played by Dan Aykroyd on uh, SNL, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Um, and uh, but as always, Meryl Streep manages sort in a way that reminds me of like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Capote, like playing the sort of this outlandish character. And yes, playing all the stuff we know as far as the external while also finding the internal. It's a marvelous performance. Um, and uh we see her as she's as she's trying to publish her first cookbook, which is what would you know launch her into uh, superstardom and all that kind of thing. And uh, <clears throat> and the last moment is just uh, she and her husband, played wonderfully by Stanley Tucci, of course. Uh, he comes in uh, there. I think she's in the kitchen. I don't remember if if he comes in or she comes in, but uh, they're in the kitchen together, and they get like the, her first copy of the book. And she opens it 
and just the, the, oh my gosh, it's, and I think the fact that it's a shared moment is also something sort of yeah. like Fargo that I, that I really appreciate that like, uh, and what Meryl Streep does, like she just, she plays it as, as so we've all had this. Anybody who does something creative, and maybe it's not even purely a creative thing, anybody who's been striving for something, and then you see the fruits, you see the fruits of your labor, and in that moment, like, yeah, she's been working on this book and all that, but in that moment, like, well, there's no denying it, this is a thing that exists, you know, uh, it's a moment that uh, that I felt when uh, my last documentary real redemption played at the international Christian film festival. Like it, it essentially, it came out during the pandemic. And so like people could just watch it online and, you know, and I was seeing reviews and stuff like, okay, well, I guess people are seeing it, but then to actually see it with an audience, uh, on a, on a large screen, you were there. Uh, it just felt, it became so much more tangible. Uh, and it's something that I think a lot of people can, can relate to. And in that moment, just the, the noise she makes and just the, the, just the, the sheer joy on her face is something that, that is hard to, hard to replicate. Uh, but it's one that I'm sure she as an actress can understand. Uh, like the first time she gets a role or the first time she like saw herself on screen or something like that. Uh, I, I'm sure she's tapping into something there because it just, it's just such a, a such an unguarded moment of happiness and, and a yeah. really marvelous moment. Ah, I have always meant to see that movie. It's, it's so much better than, than people give it credit for, uh, I think. Um, and, and all of it, not just, not just the Julia Child stuff, but I think Amy, Amy Adams does a great job as, as Julie. Yeah. So it's, it's worth seeking out. Yeah. Um, okay. Number four, not a moment of unguarded joy. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, a moment, actually we'll go, it's the opposite. It's a moment of uh, unguarded uh literally hatred uh it is mel gibson in signs and mm. it's the moment when they've gone down to the basement and lo and behold there's a creature down there that can't get to them but they're sort of like freaking out and uh graham's son who has asthma does not have his inhaler and and he is having trouble breathing and of course he's lost his wife uh sort of before the film has started and he is trying it's it's this crazy and, and this is something I definitely um definitely understand more now that I'm a parent but it's this crazy moment of being very present with your kid and then having a wildly different personal reaction um and so he's encouraging his son breathe like I do breathe with me. We're going to get through this. Tell yours. And then he just goes, it, it's actually, and it's, it's interesting. He sort of does a little prayer. Mm -hmm. um, and earlier in the movie at the dinner table, he has declared that he will never pray again. And even though this is an angry prayer, it is a prayer nonetheless, where he says, don't do this to me again. Yeah. And then he just says, I hate you. I hate, and he is so, he's so broken. He just can't fathom losing something else. And then what's great is that he goes right back to encouraging his son. Yeah. And that shift is like, if I just think about that 
in as a screenplay, that's actually a bit clunky. That is something that really is performance dependent. Yeah. And if you don't have an actor who can make that shift, that moment, one of the one one side or the other, either the comforting your kid or the prayer is going to fall flat. Um, but Mel Gibson, whatever we may think of him, yeah. whatever his behavior has been, um, he is that caliber of performer, um, especially as a father, I think, especially in, in this role. This is probably my favorite Mel Gibson performance. Um, yeah, I think probably for me as well. And he can he can walk that line. He can have that outward facing and then inward facing moment. Um, and it just I mean, it just crushes me. I almost chose the dinner table scene because it's 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 so ridiculous and so angry and also so lovely and and eventually warm and and yeah. familial. But this is the moment that when I think of signs, I think of this moment. Yeah. And, and the, I mean, the dinner table sequence is great and he definitely is at the center of it, but as an, on, but as an ensemble, I think it, it works really yeah. well. Um, yeah. So that, that sort of quiet introspective moment in which you're like, he's, you know, you're really uh, uh, contemplating some of the, the darkness of the world uh, is, is what's going to lead me to my, my next one, which is from the movie, the woodsman which is a good movie, not necessarily a great one. I haven't seen it in many years. But Mos Def has a supporting role in it as a detective. And, you know, Mos Def is fairly young at the time. Uh, and yeah. he, and he, but he plays a guy who's been on the job for a, a while, long enough at least. Mm -hmm. And he has this monologue that is probably a little bit overwritten. Um, I was looking back on it and it's just about the stuff that he has seen. And he talks about one case mm. in particular and that this is the case that like broke him and a lot of other like hardened detectives that he knew mm. and like i still remember how he delivers it like he he delivers it as someone who just kind of gave up hope huh. possibly as this as a function of this case or maybe it's the one that's most memorable to him but it's also maybe it's just one of many in fact it probably is uh and he just looks he just looks deflated as he sits there and that that always struck me the idea of playing playing a complete lack of energy because the world has just sapped it completely mm -hmm. is something it, it's 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 a very specific choice and i've seen mosdef play other things as well and they don't and and he makes he makes odd choices. I remember in the movie Sixteen Blocks, he plays an extremely annoying character. Like he plays him as annoying, and it's a bold choice, uh, and it's and it's sort of a a showy choice, which makes this this performance in general, but this moment especially, where again, I think it is overwritten, um, but he manages to to really sell it 
Uh, like it's a it's a tough movie to watch overall, and you get this, and you know you have characters like this who are involved, and the story that you're and, and you realize like, well, we're watching just one story, and this is a guy who, for him, this is one of many many stories, right. and you can see it in his demeanor, even if he's not very old, like he's old enough, and uh, he's probably aged tremendously as a function of of this job, and it's a, yeah, it's. Again, I, I, I would recommend the perform the the film for several of the performances, but for his performance especially, and for this moment particularly. Hmm. I have never seen that film. Hmm. That's a, that's two that we're 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 hanging around the early aughts right now. Um, hmm. Actually, when was Julie and Julia? Nine, two thousand nine. Nine. Okay, so we're we're still in the aughts. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that because, you know, that type of monologue, as you describe it, is kind of a cop movie, cop show staple. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, but when it's done well, as, as you were talking, I immediately thought of NARC. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the monologues in that about sort of that one case. Yeah. It's like, yes, we've seen it before, but when it's done well, it can still reveal character. Um, and it can still, you know, as, as you were saying, it's like almost the fact that he's young actually makes it worse that he's yeah. already seen this much. Yeah. Um, as opposed to you would sort of expect it from somebody who's old and grizzled, maybe like a Morgan Freeman in seven, but yeah. someone who's this young, you would kind of expect them to be a little bit more bright eyed and, and hopeful. Yeah. And feeling like, oh, I can make a difference. And, and you, you get the impression like, Oh, but this isn't the case that's breaking him. He's already been broken, like, which which I think suggests even more about the world that like, the moment you start doing this job, you start being broken by some of the horrible <laughs> things uh, of the world. So, um, okay, so I think we, I don't remember. I I have two left. Oh, I have three left. Okay, all right, that makes How sense. Is that possible? Because I think I went first. I think. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I don't remember that. Okay. Because we used Al we used Alec Guinness and originally required for my ten. Oh, we did. Okay, great. I didn't realize that was your ten. I thought that was the bonus. Right. One yeah. of one of many bonuses. Um, my number three is uh, another film from the early aughts. Um, and gosh, I was just rewatching the scene, and I, I was just like, I I was a wreck, and it was reminding me how much of a wreck I was when I when I saw this film in theaters. It is Keisha Castle Hughes in Whale Rider. Mm. Remember Whale Rider? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's just, it is a beautiful movie. Um, you know, I, I, I wish she had had, she was on Game of Thrones and she did a few, I think she did the, um, she played Mary in the Nativity Story. Yeah. But I wish she was getting more work. Uh, maybe she's getting some TV work <laughs> I don't know about, but I think she's just fantastic. Um, so in this movie, the scene I'm talking about is she plays this little girl and um, she lives with her grandparents. Her father is sometimes around and they live on, I, I'm not going to get the culture right. Is it New Zealand? I think it's New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and anyway, they're part of a tribe and the tribe is, she is supposed to, basically her father was kind of supposed to take over as leader of, of their tribe, but he left instead. And in their tribe, it has to be a male leader. And so the fact that she is the next heir is a big problem. And it's especially a big problem for her grandfather. 
And so she wants to learn all the rituals and she wants to do all the things. And he is constantly just kind of pushing her down. Um, and we see that, you know, he still loves her and all the stuff, but still there's that animosity. And so there is kind of a performance for all that all the kids are doing. And she really wants her grandfather there and he's not there. And I can't, I can't quite remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I think he kind of refused in some way. I think there's a, been a big rift. And anyway, this scene is she has dedicated it to her grandfather and she's basically going through sort of the, the tribal leader chant. And she is, it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm having to be careful how I talk about this because I find it so emotional that I could well up at any second. The whole reason she's doing it is because she wants his approval. She wants yeah. his affection. She wants to be, um, she wants to be validated by him so deeply. Um, and she's very much loved by her grandma, but it's her grandfather's affection that she really deeply wants. And so as she goes through this uh, chant, she keeps stopping and she's like wiping tears away and she's crying and people are encouraging her. Um, and she finally gets through it and it's beautiful. Um, and she says like this great line that I'm gonna attempt to say, which is um, she's talking about like uh, her namesake, uh, Pykea. And she says, because sometimes even when you're the leader, uh, or even if you're the leader and you need to be strong, you can get tired. Hmm. And it's, I mean, it it probably should be my number one because I'm a fucking wreck talking yeah. about it. But you just end up having so much pride for her. You feel so proud yeah. of her. You see, um, kind of like a couple of the other moments I was talking about, and I think this certainly is something that resonates with me. But you see just how much strength there can be in that, in that vulnerability. And you see how much courage it takes for someone who is feeling broken um, to attempt to be put together and attempt to lead. Um, so yeah, it's a great moment. It's a great yeah. film. I haven't seen it since the theater. That's 2003 in the States. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I remember really loving it at the time. And I feel like I should uh, definitely revisit it. Um, yeah. So I was going to try and save this for the end, but it feels like it, it, it makes more sense to talk about it here just as far as uh, emotion uh, and just a, a character being overwhelmed with emotion. And I, and I, I have said it before as, as certainly my favorite moment of tom hanks career uh and that is the the end of captain phillips uh the which i was so sure that he was going to get an oscar nomination for this uh if for this scene alone if nothing else yeah um yeah it's after everything has happened and he's done a pretty good job of holding himself together and really focusing on things but you know and so you, you on one hand you wonder like Oh, why is he suddenly in shock? Why is this happening now? And it's like, well, somehow, like when the he's running on adrenaline and all that, and then it does end in a violent climax in which he's not necessarily in danger, but it's like, oh, this is now it is it has come to its conclusion, and there are people that are now dead, and it's like it it's just everything is happening at once, like whatever 
composure he had, that's done. And so it's just him being questioned by, uh, you know, a, a paramedic or whatever. And he's clearly in shock. Yeah. And he keeps almost crying, but not because that itself would be almost a catharsis. Uh, and that's not really what shock is about uh, to the degree that shock is about anything. Like it's not a purely emotional state. It's an intellectual state. It's, it's So the idea that he, Tom Hanks is able to let himself feel all of these things that conflict. And, you know, I think it's a very unselfconscious performance because he, not literally, but like, you know, the character when you're not, when you don't know what's going on because you're just, you're, because you're in shock, you could appear kind of dumb, really, mm -hmm. like, or silly or frustrating or whatever it is. Um, and he doesn't care. Like, he just plays shock. And, and there is poignance to some of the stuff that he says, but he doesn't play it for poignance because yeah. he's playing the character he's not playing the 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 story beat like there's yeah. that moment where the the paramedic asks like uh is this your blood because he has blood on him and he said and he says uh, no not all of it and it's like that's a harrowing thing to say when you yeah. think about it that like oh i have uh i have a lot of blood on me and some of it's mine and some of it belongs to uh, the guys that were going to kill me. And uh, boy, mm -hmm. who can, who can even keep track of all the blood right. I have on me? Um, but in an just, action movie, that would be a joke. Of course, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but there it's, and, and in a movie like this, that could be seen as like, Oh, harrowing, uh, mm -hmm. which it is, but it's more harrowing precisely because he doesn't play it as that. He doesn't play it as inherent meaning. Um mm -hmm. And it is, it is one of the most, again, unselfconscious, you know, in the moment performances I've ever seen. And I watch it and I am just uh, a like, I, I'm a big Tom Hanks fan. A lot of people are understandably. So marvelous actor. I, you know, this might not be my overall favorite performance of his, but I think this is my favorite moment of acting from him to such a degree. It's like, I didn't even know he had this in him. Hmm. As strange as that may sound, because he's a great actor, but like this level of just being tuned in, just completely one with yeah. the emotion. Like, how do you do that? How do you even do that? He wasn't in shock. How can you how can you mimic shock so perfectly? It's crazy. And it is, I mean, it's very much to the strength of that movie that that I never expected that moment. Yeah. Like I, he is so put together. He's like, he's so just kind of dependable in many yeah. ways that you kind of think like, oh man, this, this is tragic and, and frightening and all of that. But it reminds you that this guy is not an action star. This is yeah. not someone who was in any way prepared for this. And it has, it takes a toll. And it sort of just, re it kind of drives home everything that's happened and grounds it um, yeah. in that one moment. And man, yeah, I, I did not expect that movie. That moment comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And, and it yet, wasn't, of course, it comes out of everywhere. Like, it's, yeah. And it wasn't it in the script. Sense. It was more. Uh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. It was Tom Hanks, who I think was, was also a producer on it. I think he was saying, he was asking like, well, what, what happened next? And it's like, well. 
Phillips was taken into the other room and kind of everything was, was gone through. And so he's like, well, let's do that. And so they got like a real, I don't know if it was an EMT or something like they got a real EMT to like go through all those questions. Mm. And yeah, it was. And so like, you know, it's all essentially ad lib. So yeah. So that also, so think of how in the moment and in character he has to be to give the correct answers in that moment that are not to my knowledge scripted. It's right. It's such a, it's a, it's a miracle of a moment. Yeah. Oh, that is, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. My, my number two, which means absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, is, is also a, a, a tie. Uh, it's uh, it's two moments that are the same moment, kind of, from the same actor in the same year in different movies. And it is, of course, 1999, Tom Cruise doing the Tom Cruise clap yeah. in both Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. And while that is sort of, I, I, I affectionately and, and sort of in a silly manner refer to it, but as the Tom Cruise clap, but it is, I think his, um, what do they call it? His master justice. Is that what they call it? Oh, I don't know. You're the, you're the theater that's, guy. I think that's was it. It's something like that. I can't remember quite. The they term, didn't teach us that. this kind of stuff in the UCLA <laughs> master's program. <laughs> they didn't teach us much over there. Um, yes. The master justice. That's what I'm going to call it. I'll look it up later and feel like an idiot when it's something different, but it basically is, what is the thing your your character does? And mm-hmm. I've I've gotten to do it for a couple different performances, um, and it it's fun to think about and fun to sort of incorporate. But when Tom Cruise claps, it is, and you can see it in Jerry Maguire. Uh, you can definitely see it in in Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. And he is so filled with emotion and intensity that that intensity, when it's not an action movie has to come out. It has to be expelled in some way. And he chooses to do it through a, an intense clap. And in Eyes Wide, they're, they're very different. They're very different in Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. Um, Tyler, we were joking that in Magnolia, it's the only clap where he holds the clap. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, we're being ridiculous, but it, it because it's like it's such an emotional moment. Um, and it's when, you know, he's seeing his father and is just, and is, he's weeping. And yeah. if you're someone like Jason, you're weeping as well. Then, uh, you know, and he is just like almost compelling himself to stay in the same room and witness the pain of this man that he has hated for so long. Yeah. And almost like he hates that he's seeing him as vulnerable because it just reminds him of all the pain that this man caused him and it just tears the walls down. So there's so much going on. Whereas in eyes wide shut, he is walking along the street and he is thinking about his wife. More specifically, he's thinking about his wife with another man. And it's actually kind of, it's, it's, it's like anger and jealousy and also this weird little bit of, childish impotence yeah a little bit in that what is he you know this i mean really the whole night his whole escapade in eyes wide shut is kind of that like jealous response to like his character has never before considered 
that his wife could have any feeling of romance or attraction to anyone but him, because that's just not how women are made right. um, is, is what he sort of ends up putting his foot in his mouth and saying. And so he's just consumed by it. And all he can do is walk down and just angrily just clap as hard as he can and keep walking. And I think it's like, it's silly in abstract, but I think it's incredibly effective in the moment. And it's another example of an actor who, who is looking to, um, it's funny, I was just talking with an actor about this today. Um, Shakespeare, uh, when, if you're an actor and you're performing Shakespeare, one of the most important things to do is find physicality to accompany the language because the language can be so dense that for an audience, it can be hard to get your head around. So if you are communicating the language physically, then you basically give the audience another chance at understanding the language and the story and the relationships and the dynamics. And I think similarly, I'm not saying Eyes Wide Shut or Magnolia is Shakespeare in writing, but it's the same mentality in that he is trying to take what is internal and find a way to express it externally. Of yeah. course you could have either one of those characters just sit and look at the other character and you could project everything I've just said onto them, but by externalizing it in some sort of physicality, he is kind of trying to draw that emotion out in a, in a more dynamic and a more visceral way. Yeah. And I, for one, think it's incredibly effective. Um, so you were taught, I, I have my, my last one here and I'm tempted to scrap it in favor of something else because you were talking about like sort of that impotent rage uh, and I'm inclined to talk about the uh, the uh, room trashing scene in Citizen Kane, uh, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm going to sidestep any actual transition. I'm just gonna say that, and then I'm gonna talk about <laughs> what I what I actually wanted to mention because it is one of my favorites. Uh, it's from the movie The Hustler, um, mm. which is a movie that uh, that I really love. Uh, David is not a huge fan of it for reasons that I totally understand, which is it is a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know, what uh, self-consciously heavy, self-important, maybe you could say, um, at times. But um, but at this, but at the same time, like there, there's so much good in it. It's, a, it's visually gorgeous, great performances all around, uh, including and maybe in particular Jackie Gleason as Minnesota fats man oh man this is a character who doesn't talk much he's extremely physical which is interesting because obviously Jackie Gleason's a, a bigger guy uh, mm -hmm. and yet he has to be really you wouldn't think of a pool player as somebody who is extremely physical but you have to be they really have to be like you have to be able to like bend over the table and just like really understand like exactly what to do with the cue which means you have to know exactly what your the muscles in your arms are doing and your fingers and all that like it requires quite a bit uh and that's all there in spite of the fact that he's a portly guy but also is wearing like a nice suit and he's got a little flower like he's just a very you know he's just so well put together he kind of he looks like uh you know a dandy mob boss or something like that <laughs> um and like i said he doesn't he doesn't talk very much but he just his presence in general, uh, 
just exudes respectability, exudes a certain kind of wisdom and exudes a certain kind of ability. So within all of that, when he first goes up against Fast Eddie, the, I mean, it's just one game after another, after another, and Eddie is young and inexperienced. He's a, he's a pool player. I think it's argued that he's a better pool player than Fats. But he's impulsive and he's immature. And, you know, this is a, he's, he's a great sprinter, maybe not the best marathon runner. And Fats is a marathon runner. Uh, and so there's this wonderful moment where essentially they kind of take a break. They've been playing for hours and hours and hours and they take a break and Fats goes into the bathroom like because he wasn't a full suit. And then, you know, over time, you see that he's like he's taken his jacket off. He's loosened his ties, just got his vest on. Um, and then after uh, after the break, he goes into the into the bathroom. He comes out. He's got this his tie back up. He's got his jacket back on. He puts his hands out in a very like in a very uh flagrant fashion has somebody put powder on his hands and he goes <laughs> and he was like fast eddie let's play some pool and it's just like and it's just the the way that he says it and the and and the physicality it's just this idea of like oh you you're not going to beat this guy like yeah. you like and even though eddie has been beating him it's almost like Fats has just decided like, okay, I have this kid's number now. Yes, he's been beating me, but all I need to do is keep going and mm -hmm. he'll beat and he'll beat himself. But, yeah. but I can't do it like I was. I need a moment of renewal. I need to reassert who I am. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so it's just the way that he comes out. It's the he kind of presents his hands to have powder put uh -huh. on them. And then he just says it in such a matter of fact way. It's like, let's play some pool as if like, it's the most casual fun thing in the world. And he's not right. about to ruin this kid's life. <laughs> um, uh, and <clears throat> excuse me. And it's uh, and that's to say nothing of just the way that he looks at fast Eddie, uh, mm -hmm. both at the beginning in the middle and at the end of their first bout. And he just sees right through him. It's, it really is. It's like the gunslinger, you know, where it's like, I have seen so many people come up against me Yeah. and yeah, you're really good, but you're not, there's so much more to this than pure ability. Yeah. And just the, the way that he looks at fast Eddie. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's worth noting, obviously not that Oscars mean everything, but like Jackie Gleason was nominated for an Oscar for this film for a supporting actor, despite having very, again, very little dialogue. I think he maybe, maybe has like five lines over the course of the film and but he's in it a lot and when he's there he just not simply because of you know his size and the fact that he's called minnesota fats but like he just he just dominates that room but that's the moment where he has made the decision to crush this kid and he couldn't be more cheerful about it <laughs> now i the moment I'm, I keep thinking of, I'm wondering if, if that moment was an inspiration for um, the moment in the Matrix where Agent Smith has just been killed by Neo in their fight in the uh, subway. Mm -hmm. And then he comes right, and you know, his glass has been broken, all this stuff. And now he just gets out of the subway and he's completely renewed. And it's sort yeah. of like, 
yeah, you, you can do this once or you can yeah. do this a little while. I can, I can look and feel and act as if this is the, I'm at moment one, not yeah. hour five, you know, it's, and can you keep up with that? I don't yeah, think you can. It's like that moment in infinity war where Iron Man just like does all of this stuff. And Thanos is like all that for a drop of blood. Yeah. Like there's just something not to suggest, I don't think fats, he's an antagonist, but he certainly isn't the villain. He's just right. part of this world and he, and he has a reputation to uphold and he's going to uphold it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it is like, it, it's what happens when you, when you come up against like an immovable object Yeah, and you realize like, Oh yeah. Okay. They're, they're, inability to be you know be moved is just as much a function of their will and their choice as anything else yeah well and it's a nice moment of like you said there are other things other than just taking uh, a cue and hitting balls there right. are more aspects to the game and minnesota fast is much more versed in those and fast eddie is not yet and how the fuck did i on that how the fuck did I not think to do this after you mentioned your uh, Sherlock Jr. scene? Good lord! I, d- I don't know. I did. I did think about the pool. The pool connection. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. So my my final one, my number one, comes from my number three movie of all time, which is Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, and it's Anton Walbrook's monologue. Uh, basic. I, I can't remember if it's exactly after world war or just during it but he's basically trying to come back to england and they don't want to let him in and they're saying well you know we don't know who's friends of england and who's not and if you're really a friend of england you should actually appreciate that because it's for your protection blah right. blah blah and he's basically being told we're, we're sending you back we've got no one here that's going to vouch for you and instead of complaining and instead of getting upset he just starts talking and basically starts telling them the reason why he's coming to this country, which is that his wife was British and he's basically coming to a place that reminds him of her. And throughout the course of the monologue, um, you hear that he's not only lost his wife to death, he's lost his sons to the Nazi party and he's lost his country to world war two. And the only positive associate. So he's coming to the one place that could feel like home. And it's, you could almost think that it's matter of fact, except he's, he speaks so softly. Yeah. Um, he's, he's almost not even trying to convince them. And this, I think, is what makes it so interesting. He's, he's basically saying, okay, well, this is the only moment I'm, I might be in England. So I might as well declare why I came so that somebody else knows. Yeah. And, and, you know, there is a nice bit of direction here where, you know, and obviously it's a beautifully written monologue, um, but the camera just kind of pushes in very, very slowly on him. And then most of the monologue plays out in a close up. And then once the monologue is finished, um, we, we cut out and we realize that all the people who are in the little office he's in have stopped and are listening to him. Yeah. And that basically tells us that he's he is in fact going to get into the country, but it's this beautiful, it's very poetic. It's but it's it is. I mean, you know, Tyler, you and I both came from the theater, so there's kind of a love of monologues built yeah. into us. Yeah. Um. And sometimes I have to beat that out of my own writing, 
Um, but when you find the right moment with the right actor and the right context, there's so much history and so much loaded into this monologue and it never overdoes it. Um, I guess I'll use this moment to shit on current monologues, especially current <laughs> TV monologues. Okay. Uh, and I wasn't planning on doing this, but now I'm in the mood. Um, there are so many, especially in limited series, there are so many freaking monologues now where every character needs their two minute backstory monologue when you're supposed to be in the middle of something that's more pressing and they never find the right, mo or they, they often don't find the right moment to deploy such a monologue. And by giving every sort of main character a monologue like this, you devalue all of them. And they also use such the wrong details. It's like they learned that details are a good thing to, to pepper into monologues. And so everyone starts going, you know, I remember my mother. Oh, her hair was like silk it, when you touch. <laughs> and it's like that. I know that you're, I can feel the writing. Yeah. You can so feel the writing. And in something like this, where an actor has absolute command and, uh, you know, and they're underplaying things and they know when to put just the littlest, you have to know when to put just the littlest hint of something in your voice and trust that, that the emotion's going to come through. And that's kind of everything that this monologue is. And I just love it to pieces. Yeah, this is uh, this is sort of in my my next 10. And I did not uh, include it partially because I've talked about it on the show before. Um, but yeah, uh, I've, I've rewatched this monologue recently in, in a class that I was teaching. And yeah, Anton Wahlberg does such a great job by like, you know, his voice is so controlled. But and his eyes like he doesn't blink very much. He's kind of staring straight ahead. You can his eyes look a little moist. Mm -hmm. But I think there's such a I think the real sadness is that it's not that he's not feeling what he's saying. He is. Mm -hmm. But you kind of get the impressions like and he doesn't seem like he's like right on the on the brink of crying. It really does almost feel like he has shed so many tears for this already. Maybe not literally, but all of the big reactions to what he is saying he's already had. And now they are just a fact of his life. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that, <clears throat> that I've described uh, in regards to, to grief. Uh, a friend recently uh, lost his mother uh, and he was asking me about like my dad and, and if it gets easier and it's like, well, it's yes, but that fact is itself hard you know uh because when you like because eventually just loss whether it be as you mentioned like the loss of his wife or or his children um it just becomes like the the um, the, in, the sting fades and you might still kind of have some emotion towards it but more than anything this bit of loss, this thing that is so defining of you just becomes one more fact of your life. And you, and mm -hmm. you realize you can say it without feeling it. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you're stifling the emotion. It's just part of who you are now. And yeah. it's only, it's only when you really, really try to delve into like the details of the person that you have lost that you're like, Oh, right. This is like, this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, but it is sort of like saying like, oh yeah, the, 
the sky is blue and my dad's dead or, you know, right. the grass is green and uh, my wife died or my, you know, whatever. And he's sort of playing it as, as that, as someone who it's not, he's not devoid of emotion. He still feels something, but it's just his, his having an emotional reaction to it right now is not going to, or really at any point at this, uh, at this stage in his life, it's not going to change anything. And so it, but it's not a practical choice either. It's a, there's a lot of complexity in that performance. Yeah. And, and I think people could probably read a lot into it, but, but mm -hmm. I see it as someone who has sort of had the reaction already, probably many times. And now it's just part of who he is. And he is just explaining that. Yeah. And, and I think it's that he's had so much taken from him and the, what he's trying to do is get a little tiny bit of comfort. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not this big, it, it's, he doesn't play it as this gigantic gesture of, that he's doing. He plays it as a man who's looking for just a tiny bit of comfort. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a marvelous monologue. It is one of my favorite movie monologues of all time. Uh, yeah. for, for every reason that you mentioned it's, I think it's yeah. beautifully realized, wonderfully written and yes, uh, amazingly played. Um, so yeah, uh, it's boy, I'm so dumb because you may, you know, that like we are first thing like, Oh, let's just do five each. And then I said, maybe let's do 10 in case oh, we can't fill the time. <laughs> I thought I'd gotten away with just doing five. I, I didn't even mention to you. Oh, that seems like fewer than we normally do. I thought, great, I'm going to roll with it. And then you texted me and said, let's make it 10. And I yeah. said, like an idiot, I said, sure. Yeah. And what you could have said was, you realize that you by yourself have filled an hour on more than one lesson. And the two of us, when we go to Denny's, we'll talk for like four hours without trying. Uh, five, hell, two each could be enough to fill an hour, much less go two full hours, which we have done at this point. And that just by you mentioning Meryl Streep, you had to decide to give another example of her, which prompted me to say, oh, hey, I have one for, yeah. for that movie too that we're not talking yeah. about. Yeah, that's just, that's, you know, that's how I can sleep at night is, yeah. it's like, well, I mean, I've got to work. I at least need to mention the room trashing scene in Citizen Kane. I mean, what, right. what am I, a monster? Um, I would love to then just mention the Sam Jack, Samuel L. Jackson thinking in Jackie Brown when it's him and Robert mm, De Niro in the van before he kills yeah. him. I, I wanted to throw that one in there. And you know, it's so interesting. One of my all-time favorite performances, supporting lead or anything, is Robert Forrester and Jackie Brown. And wow. I can't, but I can't, point to any particular moment because that's not really how the character operates. Mm -hmm. He is just him. He is consistent throughout. I don't mean the actor. I mean the character. Yeah. Max Cherry is a source of stability yeah. and every scene is gold in its own way and yet not in a way that calls attention to itself. Yeah. And it's, and, and that's the thing is like, when I think of some of my, like my favorite actor is Robert Duvall. Now, certainly in movies like Apocalypse Now and stuff mm -hmm. and, and Network, he has these big moments, um, <clears throat> even stuff like The Apostle. But like my favorite performances of his tend to be the kind of thing that I just said with Robert Forrester, where it's like, 
yeah, I do love him in a civil action. He's got some good lines and stuff, but the performance is so uniformly marvelous. And he, as an actor, unless mm-hmm. the character requires it, requires it like Frank Hackett in, in network, he's not going to steer into, you know, Right. Uh, like really playing into anything, not to suggest that these other characters, uh, these other actors do, but, uh, yeah. but I definitely find that like there are that when I talk about my favorite actors, I I have a harder time coming up mm-hmm. with moments. I, and I think more yeah. in terms of entire performances. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could have filled this list with, if we had said no lead performances, yeah. no even big supporting performances we could have filled a sure. list just the same yeah. yeah um and listeners we would love to know what some of your favorite acting moments are uh in film history and in the meantime uh you can find us at battleshippretension.com you can uh, like us on facebook you can follow us on twitter uh at davy pretension you can follow me on twitter at tyler pretension um Please do check out my documentary, Valley of the Shadow, The Spiritual Value of Horror, which is available on uh, Venmo, not Venmo, Vimeo, the other one. Vimeo, <laughs> you can Venmo me if you want, <laughs> just, sure. uh, just like as a tip uh, for the movie. Um, but, uh, but yeah, on uh, Vimeo On Demand, you can, you can, uh, you can watch it for, uh, believe, I believe it's five, uh, $5.99. It is two hours and 20 minutes, so just be ready for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Like I said, how did I not think we could fill an hour when I accidentally made uh, a film that was initially two hours and 30 minutes, but I cut 10 minutes out and it killed me to do it. Um, But yeah, so uh, Jason, where can people find you and your work online? Uh, You can find me on Twitter sometimes at at Eakin Mm -hmm. and you can find me at jasoneakin.com. All right. Thank you, Jason, so much for being here. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.